Today's episode is brought to you by Kristen Arnett's Mostly Dead Things, out June 4th from Tin House Books and available now for pre-order at Powell's.com. Karen Russell calls Mostly Dead Things a love letter to Florida and to family, to half-lit swamps and the 7-Eleven, and to the beasts that only pretend to hold their poses inside us. And Alexander Chi says there's a gunslinger cool to every sentence, like someone is telling you the last story they'll ever tell you. Because May begins a new publishing season for Ten House, there's a flush of new enticements for those who choose to become patrons of the show. You can still get one of the final copies of today's guest, Morgan Parker's new poetry collection, Magical Negro. You can still get copies of Ursula K. Le Guin's Conversations on Writing, which since we last talked is now a finalist for both a Hugo Award and a Locus Award. And you can still subscribe to the bonus audio archive. But in addition, you can get the latest Tin House featured new release, which is Kristen Arnett's Mostly Dead Things. And after the first round of early reader subscriptions sold out way faster than we anticipated, Tin House has generously expanded the number of people who can become early readers. Early readers receive 12 Tin House books over the course of a calendar year in three shipments, months before they are available to the general public. You can check out all of this and Morgan Parker's bonus reading of her hotly anticipated YA novel, Who Put This Song On, at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is poet, essayist, and soon-to-be novelist Morgan Parker. Parker is the author of the poetry collections Other People's Comfort Keeps Me Up at Night from Switchback Books, which was selected by Eileen Miles for the 2013 Gatewood Prize and was a finalist for the Poetry Society of America's Norma Farber First Book Award and the poetry collection There Are More Beautiful Things Than Beyonce from Tin House Books, picked by Oprah and Time Magazine as one of the best books of 2017, a book that inspired Casey Lehman to say that there is no more daring artist or anyone he'd rather read in the 21st century than Morgan Parker. Parker received her bachelor's degree in anthropology and a creative writing degree from Columbia University, and her MFA in poetry from NYU. Her poetry and essays have been published and anthologized in the Paris Review, 
The Breakbeat Poets, New American Poetry in the Age of Hip-Hop, Best American Poetry 2016, The New York Times, and The Nation. Parker is the recipient of a 2017 National Endowment of the Arts Literature Fellowship, winner of a Pushcart Prize, and is a Cave Canem Graduate Fellow. She's also the host of Reparations Live, co-curates the Poets with Attitude reading series with Tommy Pico, and with Angel Nafis, she is the Other Black Girl Collective. Morgan Parker returns to Between the Covers to talk about her third poetry collection, Magical Negro, from Tin House Books. Denez Smith says, 2019 justly belongs to Morgan Parker. Her poems shred me with their intelligence, dark humor, and black-hearted vision. Diego Baez at Booklist calls Magical Negro a profound meditation on the history and future of black liberation, a searing indictment, an irreverent lampoon, and a desperately urgent work of poetry. And Patricia Smith says, if you're anxious for your snug perspective to be rattled and ripped asunder, for the predictable landscape you stroll to become all but unrecognizable, for things you thought you knew, to slap you into another consciousness. Brethren, have I got the book for you. Bay's Bestie continues her reign with this restless, fierce, and insanely inventive way of walking through the world. Once again, children, ignore Miss Parker at your peril. Welcome back to Between the Covers, Hi. Morgan Parker. Thank you. So you've talked in many interviews about how Magical Negro is different than your previous two collections, that it was the hardest book you've written, the most serious, the most urgent. And you've mentioned the comment of friend Jason P. Smith after he read some of the poems in it when he said, oh, you, you don't care about being charming anymore. <laughs> so, so let's start with a compare and contrast. Um, talk to us about the ways in which Magical Negro extends what you've been working on before and the ways it's a, it's a shift, whether in tone or strategy or content. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, a lot of the poems in this book, actually, I had written and were kind of originally part of There Are More Beautiful Things Than Beyonce. And in the making of that book, I started to see some differences um, in the poems and and. I guess the kind of sub themes of the poems, I'm always going to be talking about roughly the same things. Um, so it was interesting to see a shift in how I was talking about those things or which kind of um, what was being echoed and, and what was showing up over and over. And I, I think a lot of this book as building off of, off of my first two and, um, Responding to even, you know, the responses of those books, I think I've been thinking a lot about how There Are More Beautiful Things Than Beyonce is folks love it um, and white people <laughs> love it. And I, I'm very, very grateful for that. And I'm really grateful for the kind of wideness of the audience. Um, but there started, you know, as the book was out and, and did its thing, I started to feel that there were some parts that were overlooked or um, misread. And my job as a writer is to just kind of keep sharpening um, what I feel was left unsaid or, or to reiterate something um, 
and I, I do think that, you know, I there's no sparkly, you know, uh, playing with Beyonce and and um, that that sort of there is popular culture, but it's less of this drawing you in um, and saying let's have some fun with this. So I think to remove all of that and um, force readers to look at the the undersides um, was the project of this book. And and I think that a lot had to do with, you know, the years I was writing this book. It was just death everywhere, um, as as usual. And um, a lot of the, the rhetoric and um, language and hashtags around all of that stuff was just insufficient for me. And um, I wanted to use the a lot of the work that I had done in the last book in terms of speaking about what it feels like to be a black woman and, and what the various kind of dangers and traumas and fears are around that life. life. Um, I just wanted to go a little bit deeper into that. And I think part of that was like delving into history and, and um, making it clear that I and and the women in my community are part of a really long legacy of of people who have travailed, you know. And I think, um, yeah, I think about now more than ever, and and that kind of language, which you know I've heard used to speak about my work. <laughs> I'm like, no, 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 no. Let me get something clear. Um, yeah, I, I, it's definitely. It was definitely harder. It was um, hard for me with a lot of the poems to even, you know, look back at them after I drafted them and say, "Oh, shit!" Like that's what I was trying to say. Um, and I think I just took away the impulse to cover that up at all, or mm-hmm. um, or you know, prettify it in any kind of way. Um, well, as you moved away in this book from being um, of wanting to charm people, you said before that you were concerned about scaring people away in your previous collections, and so the ch- drawing people in, let's say with the beyond with with Beyonce, mm-hmm. and then um, doing uh, a switch and saying, "Well, actually, this book's about something else." Totally. And this book, you've you've dispensed with uh, the charming people away, and you're you're not concerned about scaring people away. But the paradox of that is you, you said that you were particularly terrified for how this book would be in the world. Mm-hmm. So how has the reality of Magical Negro been since it's come out for you and compared to your expectations or your, your anxieties about it? It's I mean, the reception has been awesome. So I and I think people are accessing it in ways that I did not expect and um, understanding it and contextualizing it in ways that I I am really, really happy about. Um, It's been hard for me personally. Um, I kind of, you know, I said at at one event, I didn't put enough jokes in this book. And that's not for anyone else. That's because I'm on stages every day Mm -hmm. reading these things over and over. And that is not fun at all. You know, that's really um, an additional struggle. And you know, to kind of relive these very vulnerable and 
tough moments of my life in American history over and over is, you know, it's for a larger good, but it doesn't feel good to me. So that part is really difficult. Well, one of my favorite public conversations you've had about the book so far is with Candace Williams at Electric Literature. Mm -hmm. And the last time you were on the show, we, we talked about the magical Negro phenomenon, the benevolent, one-dimensional, magical black figure that comes to the aid of the dimensional white protagonist in relationship to your to your last collection. But in, in your conversation with Candace, you talk about the dangers of reclaiming the magical label, mm-hmm. um, that even though you were in, for instance, the Black Girl Magic Anthology, and you support that endeavor, that just saying black people are magical is problematic on the flip side when we think about Michael Brown being seen as mm-hmm. a devil and Rodney King having Hulk-like strength. Mm-hmm. Um, so talk to us about Magical Negro, the poetry collection in this light, uh, in the light of how you wanted your work to engage with this problematic phenomenon of magic um, beyond the response of just flipping the narrative to its reverse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting and sticky because... It is the same, you know, it's a sharp edge on either side, you know, and um, it's similar, I think, to There Are More Beautiful Things Than Beyonce, where I was thinking a lot about beauty, obviously, and, and what it is like to at once kind of put black women on this pedestal, but also um, exploit their bodies, um, that kind of double-edged thing. Um, That same theme is working here where, and I I talked a little bit about that with the last, um, with the last book as well, because it was very Obama era of like, there's this, you know, black president and then everyone's getting killed. And that seems totally fine to everyone. Um, And I think there's a lot of that, that kind of like holding those two things in your mind, um, that was really working on me as I was writing this book. And I I love the kind of reclaiming the narrative of, of you know, and especially with young women seeing them say black girls are magic. I love that. And it's we know that it's sort of true. But the more it's said um, not by us, sometimes I get a little bit um, uncomfortable because it is another way to cut down and to, um, yeah, I guess not recognize one's humanity. That is really what this book is about, I think, is, is I think there's a line that says what it feels like to not be able to see a person. That really is is at the heart of this. And, and I think it's really troubling and heartbreaking to me the way that a kind of cultural understanding of a people as magical or mythical in some kind of way, how dangerous that can become. And it's not, it becomes, it maybe begins as a kind of respect for uh, survival and, and incredible strength, but then it becomes a way to justify not understanding someone's humanity. Mm -hmm. And it really, you know, I often think about 
you know, police officers saying that they truly felt threatened for their lives. And I think, you know, I I kind of don't blame them. I mean, I blame them, but that makes sense to me because if we're culturally um, only seeing certain images and versions of black people and these folks, these, you know, police officers of communities somehow have never, you know, encountered an intimate relationship with a black person, then of course they would be afraid, you know? Um, And that is... That's really, it's just heartbreaking to me, and I think something worth thinking about, you know, just how the images and the language that we use and have used for years and centuries, the things that are kind of underneath the American consciousness, how that affects our day-to-day kind of interactions with people. And I think, you know, we forget that there's all these kind of unconscious things working, um, and Inter- interrupting and interfering with those relationships and and it really starts to uh, needle and it really kind of starts to add up. Um, so this book really was like an opportunity for me to point that out and just like beg for my humanity to be seen. Um, and in that way, again, it's like way more vulnerable and just like coming out of a lot of pain and frustration, really, where, you know, I feel that there's so much I've said that has been heard. And yet, you know, and I think um, this book really is about that particular type of black exhaustion in 2019. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you've said in relationship to this book, it's becoming increasingly important for us to document ourselves we're reflected in these major ways, but it's still never enough. It's still never specific enough. Mm-hmm. It's still not exactly in our words. And I wondered if that is the key to this collection, that the collection is motivated by documentation and specification. Mm-hmm. And I, I think of the titles of the three sections, Let Us Now Praise Famous Magical Negroes, Field Negro Field Notes, and Popular Negro Punchlines, and also the titles of some of the poems, like Magical Negro Number 84 or Magical Negro Number 3 or Black Women for Beginners Part 1, all of which give this sense of cataloging and a sense of the anthropological. So I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about the thought process there. Yeah, I'm, it's kind of interesting because my other books, I didn't necessarily have such a structured kind of um, and and more of a theoretical concept around around the books and something that was just exciting to me. You know, I'm I am like obsessed with documentation and I save everything and um, I've been just kind of investigating that in myself, that impulse. And I, yeah, that just seemed fun to like mark down what I think um, my legacy is or my history is and. And to specifically just like write down what my my stuff and my experience in the world is um, and using a lot of that kind of anthropological, like self-ethnography kind of thing. Um, And it just, yeah, it was a, a lot more kind of heady conceptualizing when I started working on this book as a collection, not necessarily the poems, but I did 
one of the first attempts I, I made at kind of making the, taking this from poems to book was, uh, yeah, organizing it by these almost as, you know, an ethnography and having these different sections and, and um, thinking about like a Malinowski where it's like, here's how, here's how the people gift Here's like <laughs> what relationships are like. Right. And, um, you know, I've read a lot of anth- <laughs> like anthropological books. So I wanted to kind of borrow from that structure. And that's another way to interact with this like dehumanizing by um, by studying. I just I don't know. I think it's a really interesting and weird form, especially to use on your own community and yourself. So to kind of take that more uh that wider lens uh structure and use it for the more personal was a fun thing to play with and also I think helpful for me um so that it wasn't just like here's a lot of really tough feelings um to figure out how to present them in a way that really was a catalog and really was this kind of living archive um, and and that has to do, you know, the field notes of it. Um, that section, I really wanted to redefine some things, you know, almost as if if there is, you know, a particular dictionary of blackness that I am writing in that dictionary. This is what the word mat means. Mm-hmm. This is what um, here is like a case study of being in the African braid shop, you know, these kind of um, reworking languages and imagery. And that's part of the the re- changing the magical Negro and, and figuring out what my magical Negroes are and, and those kind of specific titles and specific figures. That was really fun and also felt really open, you know, that I kind of was able to do whatever. And there were a lot of poems that I tried that didn't make it in here, but that was kind of the thought experiment behind um, a lot of it, of just like, what does this word mean to us? What does this action um, mean to us? How do I, like, redefine these things, again, in our own words and organize them so that there is this kind of... so that it's on paper, that is very documented, and that it's something that is alive and can be added to. Well, it seems fitting that the book opens with a poem whose title is taken from a line by Zora Neale Hurston, because she was often described, rightly or wrongly, as taking an anthropological approach Mm -hmm. to her nonfiction writing. So I was hoping maybe you could read I Feel Most Colored When I'm Thrown Against a Sharp White Background. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, Zora studied anthropology at Barnard and I did at Columbia and there was like a picture of her when I went into the anthropology building. So she really is, you know, underneath a lot of this work. And, um, one reason that I feel it's that I feel permission to engage in that way. So love her. I feel most colored when I am thrown against a sharp white background or I feel sharp white, or colored against, or I am thrown, I am against, 
or when white, I sharp, I color, quiet, forget. My country is a boat. I feel most colored when I swear to God. I feel most colored when it is too late, when I am captive. The last thing on my mind is death. I tongue elegy. I color green because green is the color of power. I am growing two fruits. I feel most colored when I am thrown against the sidewalk. It is the last time I feel colored. Stone is the name of the fruit. I am a man, I am a man, I am a woman, I am a man, I am a woman, I am protected and served. I background my country, my country sharp in my throat. I pay taxes and I am a child and I grow into a bright fleshy fruit. White bites, I stain the uniform. I am thrown black typeface in a headline with no name or no one hears me. I am thrown bone, unarmed. I feel most colored when my weapon is I, when I get what I deserve, when I can't breathe, when on television I shuffle and widen my eyes. I feel most colored when I am thrown against a mattress, my tits, my waist, my ankles buried in white ash. Everyone claps. I feel most colored when I am the punchline, when I am the trigger. In the dawn, putrid yellow, I know what I am being told. My country pisses on my grave. My country bigger than God. Elegy my country. I feel most colored when I am collecting dust, when I am impatient and sick. They use us to distract us. My ears leak violet petals. I sharpen them. I sharpen them again. Everyone claps. We've been listening to Morgan Parker read from Magical Negro from Tin House. When I see all of the poems with numbers like Magical Negro, number 217, Diana Ross finishing a rib in Alabama, 1990s, or Magical Negro, number 607, Gladys Knight on the 200th episode of The Jeffersons, I have two feelings at once, and one is what you've been describing already, one that I'm witnessing a certain sort of archiving of very specific things and things that might not otherwise get archived. Mm -hmm. But it also alerts me, the numbers also alert me to that, that I'm reading something that is part of a larger work that isn't all here in front of me. Um, and I also get the feeling with the poem you just read with the acknowledgement. So, for instance, the poem doesn't just say after Zora Neale Hurston mm -hmm. to acknowledge your debt to her. But instead, the line says after Glenn Ligone, after Zora Neale Hurston, which sort of creates a chain. Mm -hmm. uh, we get Zora Neale Hurston's words, and then we get uh, the artist who uh, put her words into his installation to disembark. And then your poem mm -hmm. is, is creating another link, or at least that's the way I, I read it a little bit. So I was curious if... If you see that, is this as part of the archival activity is also sort of the connecting um, to these other figures? Definitely. Yeah, I I'm, I love Glenn Ligon's work and like have a tattoo of one of those, one of the the uh, neon signs that he that he has made. And a lot of them are using this language. Um, and, you know, what's really funny about 
those I mean some of some of the work that Glenn Ligon um plays with is from uh Gertrude Stein, which I also uh use that that kind of quote. And I think that there's a way that we pick up on little things and they get kind of repeated and that is fun to to connect to other artists and moments in time and add something else to it. And um yeah, just add another layer. Not that their work was incomplete, but to build on something and to look back. Um, that was a big part of this book is is the looking backward and the making connections. So I do feel that it was fun to think about what do I want to be in conversation with. So you've said before in, in other interviews that emotional statements and personal statements, particularly coming from women, aren't taken as seriously that if you're emotional, you are suddenly illogical Mm -hmm. and that there's this misconception to think that emotion can even be divorced from logic and clarity to begin with. So I was interested in that statement in relationship to using outside language Mm -hmm. uh, in this book. So in this case, the, the language of anthropology, which you've said gives, and I think it does, you've said that this language gives something more credence. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if, if do you employ this language twinned with a woman who's a poet being emotional as a way to sh- to to sort of uh reveal the machinery through which we're manipulated by language absolutely I, y- you do i i you know i think language is obviously i'm i'm a poet but you know language is so interesting and so important to how we understand ourselves and um, other people. And I think more so than we realize, you know, and the way that language works on us, um, the way that certain words being repeated, um, word choices. Um, I was talking yesterday to a friend about uh, this essay I was working on about um, this sermon given by uh, Bob Jones of Bob Jones University, who, among so many other egregious things, says, mentions when the slaves came over here from Africa. And I was like, just that word came, you know, like, mm-hmm. what does that mean for us to for the, for that to be used and for people to hear that? And I, I just those sorts of things. I'm really tuned into and I really wanted to have a chance to point them out. And of course, you know, the way that women's words can be misconstrued, misconstrued, the way that we start to drown out um, familiar grievances, I guess. Um, So my challenge was how do I put these things into words where you aren't you almost aren't expecting it to be emotional or you are, and that's not what happens Um, to just like play with that expectation and to see what readers find is more um, authoritative. You know, I think there's a way in which it's easy to take authority away from um, a women poet, you know, but this using that language. Like, I know that language. You know, I've read an academic book, and what does it mean to rephrase and uh, use 
your language to talk to you about my stuff Mm -hmm. because clearly it wasn't working for me to do it in my words. And, you know, that's fun also. It's also like poking fun at that when you when you're reading and realize, oh, I actually did engage with this in a different way because it is written in this particular language. Um, what does that mean? So the experience of reading the poem is at once, you know, understanding the content of it, but also understanding how the form is um, playing with that delivery of the content. Yeah. Could could we hear a couple more poems? Absolutely. So I was thinking uh, Black Women for Beginners Part 1, and we are the house that holds the table at which, yes, we will happily take a goddamn seat. Yes. Black Women for Beginners, Part 1. Every time a hot comb simmers, we dread. We get hurt so often, we think it's a nickname. When we say we remember, we mean hurricane, hunt, meadow, lust, duty, escape, settle, mourn, birch, baptism, tithe, kneel, Sphinx, throat, offering, animal, deadwood. We get hurt so often, we never run. Every time we lick our lips, the day obeys and repents. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Hot comb on the stove, train tracks in the weeds. We are the house that holds the table at which, yes, we will happily take a goddamn seat. After Solange. No one can serve two masters like we can. Be future and what they threatened to forget. Be Richard Pryor live on sunset and be the sunset. Kiss the ground. Burn it to the ground. Slay dragon. Speak dragon. Sometimes it feels like we invented America ourselves. The difference between worth and worthless without them is science. How it feels to not be able to see a person. And the number of instances when we believed we should die. For dinner, watermelon and a dry white. Gin nightcap. Low moon. How fucking dare we. The probability of a wave carrying a pearl in its mouth is the probability of a lamb slicing its own white neck, tying its legs to a spit for someone else's feast. Been listening to Morgan Parker read from her latest poetry collection, Magical Negro. So another thing that I think underlies Magical Negro's archival impulse is a question of absences and gaps and of erasure. Uh, there is all the history that's lost in the middle passage, but there's also history that doesn't have to be lost that could be told but isn't. For mm-hmm. instance, in the poem, who are Frederick Douglass's cousins and other quotidian black history facts that I wish I learned in school, we experience the erasure of anything particular or specific or everyday about black history. Oh, but also, say, Nancy Myers in your poem, Nancy Myers in My Dream of Whiteness, the director of Hollywood blockbusters like The Parent Trap, none of which have black protagonists, or the title of the first section, Let Us Now Praise Famous Magical Negroes, which is a nod to James 
Adji's work, Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, mm-hmm. which was looking at three tenant farm families, but all of which were also white. What I loved about this is that the poems and titles, they work in their own way, even if you don't know Nancy Myers, and even if you don't know of Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, mm-hmm. but you are missing something if you don't, but you don't know you're missing something, which in a way sort of echoes the experience of what you miss when you're not taught something. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're sitting in school and you're only hearing one thing and you don't necessarily have the context of what you you could be hearing. Um, I just wanted to hear a little bit about that for you in terms of how you're employing this um, in, in Magical Negro. Yeah. And a lot of that is a kind of afterward realization of, wait, why do I only know this stuff? And um, what else is there? Wait a minute. Like, this has been presented to me in, com- in an incomplete way. Um, and I, you know, I think I think a lot about using different references. And, you know, folks are always, you know, in a tough about, you know, timelessness or whatever and whether or not pop cultural markings are allowed in poetry. Um, and I don't, I, I do think a lot about who can access what. Um, and I, I like to have things where you can get it if you don't know the reference, but you also can get a little bit more if you do know it. Um, but that it's not, you know, isolating anyone. Um, And a lot of – I think that is really empowering to use kind of inside language. And sometimes it's just for me. Like these are the references that I know. Um, And, you know, Nancy Myers. sometimes when I'm reading that poem, I'm like, do you guys know who this is? And the only way I know how to explain – I'm like, you know the movies with the amazing kitchens? Like that's (laughs) – and then people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're here with you. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, and it, I think all of the references also point to a bunch of other things. So mm-hmm. it, they're more accessible in that way where, yes, it's Nancy Myers, but there's a larger kind of thing at play um, that anyone can recognize if you've seen a movie in the past, you know, 30 years. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Yeah, I, I wanted to sort of twin this to something that you said in the interview with The Believer, which I just loved. So The Believer magazine did a series in the shadow of Trump's post-truth presidency, and they asked different writers their their relationship to facts. And you had the, the most amazing answer when they said, what is a fact to you? So this is what you said. Part of my project is to make my own myths. It's a lot of rewriting and reimagining. I always say the craziest thing about the transatlantic slave trade is that so much history was lost. Names, birthdays, every kind of fact. I was never afforded that historically. Facts are white. It almost feels like facts don't belong to me. So people of color created their own myths. Facts aren't for me. And and I love the way... I, I love this, and I love the way you flip the script because it reminds me of a comment Toni Morrison made in the 1980s where she said, from my perspective, there are only black people. When I say people, that's what I mean. And I guess I wondered if this idea of facts being white 
is linked to the literal gaps that appear in your book, mm-hmm. the gaps between the front teeth of Angela Davis, James Baldwin, and Malcolm X. So these black spaces and absences that seem to be the source of their beauty in a, in mm-hmm, a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so talk to us a little bit about writing, not just against a sharp white background, but also writing in the presence of absences or from or into a black gap. I do think a lot about absence and erasure and particularly just what isn't seen or shown, um, you know, in terms of media and imagery and and, uh, which stories are told over and over and which aren't. That's part of it. And I also think that part of it is trying to name that special uh, magic, if you will, um, of which isn't public, you know, and and is a little bit ephemeral and uh, interior. Yeah, the kind of ineffable magic is something that is always almost lost, I think. Um, And that has to do with the shaping of what we see as facts. Um, There's room for for, uh, flexibility, I think, and fluidity in what is a fact. Um, And it really, you know, the way that we prioritize fact and truth and whatever is feels very uh, supremacist and constructed and um, controlling almost. So I I did want to push back on what is actually true versus what I see and, and what we as a people feel. Um, Yeah. Facts are (laughs) my therapist brings, I center that. Um, cause I talk about this stuff in therapy and she loves it. She brings it up all the time. She's like, what was that you said? Facts are white, <laughs> which, you know, I kind of, after I said that, I was like, what did I just say in this interview? <laughs> but I do really believe that, that, um, the way that black Americans operate is something other than true fact. You know, um, that's in our language. That's in the way that we play the dozens and and the way that we um, tell stories. Like all of that is we don't need um, actual facts. That's just not how we speak. And that's not how we exist and move through the world. I think it's a it's something else. I, let, let's hear Fred, Frederick Douglass's cousins because I think this this poem speaks to that a little too. Awesome. Who were Frederick Douglass's cousins and other quotidian Black history facts that I wish I learned in school? I have a body. It sits in a desk. Every day is bitten with new guilt. My teacher can see right through me, all the way to Black History Month. It is my fortune to be ashamed and from nowhere. How can I concentrate on photosynthesis when there is a thing called Africa? When my teacher talks about slaves, I become a slave. I know too much. I raise my hand, American flag and family tree. Is it my fault my stomach aches? I wait in my desk and try to be still. I lie and immediately confess. I grow a plant in a paper towel. 
I get in trouble for talking. At recess, I pretend. The mountains are closing in. I am good, but too curious. What happened to the Indians? How do we know about heaven and dragonflies? Where did Harriet Tubman sleep? Who did Harriet Tubman kiss? What about the Africans that stayed? Why are they hungry? Did Frederick Douglass's mother brush his hair in the morning? Was he tender-headed and afraid? Is this how I'm supposed to feel? Are you sure? How do you know? I've been listening to Morgan Parker read from Magical Negro. In, in your interview with Kava Akbar at, at Dive Dapper, you, you characterized your first book as very inward. Your second is looking at the people around the self. And this book is taking even a further step back, surveying a larger group of people. And you said that this distance allows you to be harsher and that perhaps you wanted this distance because of the anger you felt that you keep writing about the same themes across books and still feel like certain things aren't being picked up picked up on, which you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation mm-hmm. too, that you aren't entirely being heard. And, and similarly in your conversation with Candace Williams, you say that part of your fear around this new book coming out is that you put so much of yourself into it that you hurt yourself in doing so and that you can't stand the idea that you will have done all this emotional work and be read over. Uh, so talk to us about your frustration about things that you don't feel people are hearing and what some of that might be and also what you mean by being read over. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking a lot about this lately, mostly because I've been doing this just abhorrent thing where I like name drop my Ivy League education, which is the worst. I mean, that's like the it's a such a bad look. But I find myself doing this in, in conversations and um, readings because there's a way, again, that um, black women's poems are often only read for the content. And there's less of um, a discussion about craft and rigor. And I think that's the stuff. It happens a lot more subtly. And I think it's um, easier and and more fun, I guess, or um, whatever for, for folks to just be like, here's some this is powerful and urgent and black people, you know, like yeah. to pick up on certain, um, and you often see the word raw. Yeah, which is exactly. Contrast to crafted. Absolutely. You know, this, this feeling that these are just like my emotions spilled on the page. Uh, that's not true. They are very vulnerable, but they've been worked over and over and, um, played with. And I've done a lot of work to try to, get every word right. And often I see um, a kind of unwillingness to uh, understand that part of the book, you know, a kind of willful ignorance of that part and just focusing on the, the content's connection to a cultural conversation about blackness, um, which is all correct. But, you know, the poetry is so special because it can do more than just say, here's how I feel as a black woman. You know, um, here are some things that make me afraid or upset. 
but also to say them in a way that makes the reader feel those things uh, in a different kind of way. And, and the form and word choice and wordplay is as important as um, the content. You know, I, I think, and I, it's, I just think it's important to talk more about that in literature. And it's very interesting the way that, you know, I talk about this with other um, black women writers where it seems like everyone's always asking about the content. Whereas, you know, I've, I've seen talks with my white male writer friends and it's a lot about, you know, the craft and the intelligence and, and uh, the way that the book was written and less about, you know, is this your experience in the world? And what do you think about America and interracial dating or whatever? I, I think there's more yeah. of, yeah, a willful ignorance of um, the other stuff. And people seem so much more interested in, yeah, I guess just our like interior lives in a way that's very unfair for, for writers, you know, um, and misses a lot of the point. Um, and it just feels, I guess, I don't know. I, I'm still trying to work out like what it is that upsets me, but I I think part of it is that, you know, to be, you know, doing all these interviews and Q and A's and all these things to be only answering questions about like how I feel and how America feels and how America should feel is frankly exhausting and boring. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I'm not here as like a political representative. I have no PhD in American studies or anything like that. But I did study poetry <laughs> and I understand like how to talk about these things that are very real and present and personal, but to do so by by using the craft of poetry specifically. Um, you know, I write essays and other things and that is a different sort of um, way of accessing the work. So I just, you know, I guess I just miss some of the connecting the form and the craft to the content. Mm -hmm. um, I think, it, yeah, again, it's just easier to kind of write off uh, our words as just emotional and um, I've heard stream of consciousness, which is crazy. Uh, that, that's not how I feel. Uh, my diaries do not look like this. Um, and yeah, I, I think that's part of it. It's just like, it's easier to kind of ignore the intelligence and skill, um, of black women. And, and, and I hate to have to be like, you know, I've gotten your degrees. Like I know what I'm doing. So a friend told me recently that after a, after a reading, an older white man came up to her and was like, I don't know if you knew that you were doing this in your poem, which is like, yes, wow. we know what we're doing. <laughs> you know, it's not like we're just here um, spitting out how we feel and like not playing. Like there are subtleties that, yes, we're aware of um, and that one can study that is um, 
larger than just like, oh, me, I feel indicted as a white person or whatever. Um, I don't know. It's something that is has been interesting for me to watch. Um, and, like, as a nerd, I'm kind of like, I would love to talk about the line and um, how playing with form can interact with content. But Well, I have a question that's yeah. specific to what you're just saying that is about the line because I do want to unpack the different ways in which you use repetition mm-hmm. in the book because I think it has multiple ways in which it's affecting the reader. But one of them I wondered about is when we get these phrases repeated uh, and that reappear and echo throughout the collection, if part of that is an insistence upon on your part that's in specific to this very thing that you're saying, listen to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that, you know, I, I keep saying it in terms of, I don't know if this is heard in my past work, but it, it really is. I don't know if I'm heard ever, you know, and I think that's the larger thing at play. Are you hearing me? Are you hearing all of us? Um, We've been saying the same shit forever. And yet, um, and I think that's what is underneath. Like, it's it's less so about my um, reception, you know, in the world and in, in literature and more about history and repetition and the repetition that wears us down and the kind of it's clearly at this point I think I'm being very clear so if folks aren't um if folks aren't getting it we're saying all right we have lives that are that matter (laughs) you know basic shit like that um folks who can't get with that that's you're choosing not to uh see that stuff and I think that it, nothing is passive, and so the insistence is pointing that out, and um, I think not letting myself or anyone get away with um, rushing past facts um, about our lives um, and and rushing past real concerns that we have. So. I, I don't know. This this book is a lot about repetition um, throughout history. You know, I, I think a lot about what are the kind of frustrations that I've inherited um, from the moment I was born and how those things kind of repeat throughout our lives in various different ways. Um, the repetition of a, a Matt sort of dude and the repetition of feeling... Um, gaslit and the repetition of feeling cut down and dehumanized and and all of that. So to have that in the form and to have the reader experience that that sort of insistency and repetition is a way of trying to make the reader feel as I do, you know, Um, and, and to try to, it's not just about saying the thing. It's about feeling the thing um, over and over. You mentioned these repetitions in relationship to history. One way I read them was repetition is sort of an interrogation of the idea of progress. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, in your poem, Now More Than Ever, it opens with the line, this is a phrase used by whites to express their surprise and disapproval of social or political conditions, which for the Negro are devastatingly usual. Um, 
the subtext of which seems to be that the black experience is one of repetition. Yes. A black life in America is one of repetition. And I think that is placed on us. It's not necessarily... I think that's lack of freedom. You know, when things are repeated on onto you, we're just trying to move and reinvent and um, freestyle our way into liberation, um, which would be the permission and the freedom to just continue and to be different and to um, be specific and, and be... Yeah, I guess uh, free in our in ourselves rather than repeatedly living out other people's ideas of who we are, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, well, the difference yeah. between sort of the white surprise of now more than ever mm-hmm. versus um, – the black response, but this has been going on forever. Exactly. Like I think of like, re- let's just get over it. Like <laughs> there's a way in which the now more than ever rhetoric is. So one of the reasons it's frustrating is because it kind of, um, it popularizes what is what we're just sick and tired of, you know? So to build something around, um, a particular era of black pain is it's almost fetishizes it and creates a space where it isn't nothing is solved because it's like always brand new whereas if we acknowledged the kind of insistence and persistence of of these issues then maybe we can make a space to get out of there. But if it's always this kind of like, ooh, this is urgent and brand new and let's, you know, now more than ever we need to have you do this reading about, you know, about your pain. Like that is, I, why, you know, it's not, this is not a cool kind of like revolution. Um, It should be over. The everness should be over by now. Well, I think of like the, Black History Month and then all of the blackface scandals in Virginia um, and the Gucci and the Burberry uh, yeah. s- scandals that also happened in Black History Month where it felt like the larger cultural response was to distance themselves from Virginia or ourselves from Virginia. Absolutely. Um, what's going on in Virginia? What's in the water in Virginia? And then other people just started looking very casually looking at yearbook history in any number of schools all over the country. And it's, it's, there's nothing particularly going on in Virginia. Essentially it's going on everywhere. Right. And I was, for that matter, I was, I was reading about something very un Morgan Parker like that you did, (laughs) which was a hike. Oh my gosh. Can you you believe I did that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you said you did a hike here in Oregon I did, and you did it based on another thing where you could say Oregon and Virginia, not that different um talk to us about what that hike was all about um yeah i i don't even know if you can call this other people were hiking around me so i was like is this can i truly say this is a hike because i was kind of going up an incline there was an option for like 75 stairs or something i I said to my friend i was like this is not rocky like i'm not (laughs) here for this um but you know we looked at the map and he was like oh there's a statue 
called The Coming of the the White Man. And I was like, first of all, just that language, I must see it. Um, this is like a spiritual pilgrimage now. <laughs> and I will actually, yes, do this un-Morgan Parker thing um, in service of a very Morgan Parker thing, which is um, looking at at racist language and, and um, the preservation of praise of white man. Um, so, yeah, that was really... It really was about seeing something up close, you know, and not being able to just, like, write something off. Or um, it was funny. When we got to the top, there was also this um, white woman with, I think, like, her daughters. And she was like, oh, my gosh, I hate that title. And I was like, I love it. And she was like, Ugh. <laughs> I was like, I love this title. I love bluntness. I love um, seeing, like, when people sh- show you who they are, believe it sort of thing. I'm I'm just very interested in blatancy. Yeah. Well, I want to keep following this theme of repetition mm-hmm. a little bit because in addition to repetition functioning as a certain insistence, at times repetition is also an enactment of the way propaganda works. Mm-hmm. Um, so the images and messages that are constantly repeated the insistence and the repetition of the propaganda of white supremacy. And I was hoping you would read one paragraph from Toward a New Theory of Negro Propaganda before we talk about this phenomenon of the way you're engaging propaganda. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I marked it out in there. Okay, great. For example, the Negro obviously understands how the talking heads of reality TV stars are essentially a manifested rendering of the Greek chorus, how fault is assembled episode by episode, how it matters who gets named what. The Negro thinks about Greek myths quite a bit, how such stories, for all their respected antiquity in the American imagination, are sanctums of whiteness such that the realm of them and their reverence presumes that only whites may be cast in multiple representations of model behaviors, while the Negro must repeat less revered folklore on an endless and aching loop. White propaganda relies upon the unwavering belief that any versions of nirvana require the absence of the Negro. This is both the conscious and unconscious peak of white imagination." So when I read that, I, I was curious if if you see your own repetitive images and and statements as as part of this new Negro propaganda. If in a in a strange way, the poetry collection is the, is the new Negro propaganda. This is Morgan Parker's TV station, and I'm going to put Diana, mm-hmm. Diana Ross eating a rib on TV when you turn it on. Completely. Um, I actually I wrote this poem for. Uh, an exhibition at the Institute of Contemporary Art in Philadelphia. Um, And this curator was doing an exhibition about poetry and visual art. And um, a lot of the artists were, I guess, familiar with, like they, they kept bringing up my name. And so she was like, you should write something. And, I wrote this after doing a few studio visits with with folks, and I was really interested in the way they were playing not only with language but imagery and black imagery and um, 
you know, the first time I went to see, uh, to have like a walkthrough of the exhibition, uh, Meg, the curator, was talking and then just the Family Matters song came on. And I think that's, that really, that was part of someone's installation. And I think, so I think about these artists as also working in that, let's make something where we just see ourselves in the way that we want to over and over. Mm -hmm. And what does, what would that even look like? Um, So I was really inspired by the many very different ways that these artists were doing that. And I just wanted to think about, um, yeah, that idea of propaganda and re the fact everything is propaganda, you know, so how do we make good propaganda? You know, how do we make the things that are repeating, like you are loved and you do matter. And instead of the other way around. Um, yeah. And I, I think even just pointing out that, we understand the ways in which, like, there's an okey-doke happening. Like, we understand the ways that um, we're being played, basically. And we do I, – I want it also to be a kind of empowering moment where we do have the tools to uh, combat that. You know, we don't have to – even though we recognize that we don't have to go along with it. Um, and it can be a little bit of, like, I see you and – I dismiss you, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of pain that comes from that sort of propaganda. And how can we make something, not not that hurts other people, but that um, is free of pain for ourselves? Um, yeah. Well, I, I wanted to take this question of interrogating progress or the absence of progress um, because you've also said you go so far as to say you don't believe in time. Oh yeah, and that we are <laughs> that we are addicted to linear time. Mm-hmm. And so, much like the way you call facts white, you associate linear time with whiteness. And I want to hear more about this. <laughs> yeah, it's my brain is crazy because we're like all understanding that brain. together. <laughs> Doesn't um, seem crazy. Time, but... space, facts, whatever. That's all just. Um, those are all fake structures, um, and they're just, like, invented and placed on top of an experience, which is more um, spiritually kind of fluid, you know? Um, there is a way that I feel very connected to ancestors and their experiences. And, you know, I talk about this book as being written by a lot of different people, I think, Um Many of the poems, I I looked back at them and I'm like, who wrote this? And I think that there was a lot of extra Mm. um, help and that there was like a lot of, yeah, just ancestral kind of hands on this and uh, community um, input in a way where it's almost like speaking through me and over time – that's how repetition plays out in my particular experience. Um, talk a lot about how I feel like I almost feel trauma of being on a slave ship, like legit was there somehow. Like it feels like I have been in all these different places um, in my lifetime and am there. And it's, there's a way in which, um, 
these like I have these like blips of what t- what era even is it? Um, which is I don't know. I don't think it's that strange. And linear time is just feels too easy um, for the very surreal experience of being alive, and particularly in America. Um, I don't think it's strange either, but would you allow me to go to a, like, yeah. to be a little weird about where I go f- yeah, from here? Yeah, please. So, <laughs> so if we think of facts and time as white, and you have this, you have this line, Negro propaganda is born of the opportunity in blips, dead air revision, imploding narratives, and space travel, and also Negro propaganda insists upon simultaneity, mm-hmm. both of which you just touched on. It makes me think of black holes. In in the language of physics, black holes act as, quote-unquote, ideal black bodies, bodies that reflect no light. And they form when a star collapses. So they form out of some, wow. something... You know, I'm thinking, I mean, this is just crazy. I Connect, love this. Connections. I'm like, like, I'm writing an essay about this right <laughs> now in my head. <laughs> much like you're, you're saying Negro propaganda is born of an imploding narrative. Mm-hmm. The black hole is born of the imploding star. And they warp all of the typical understandings of time and space, literally, mm-hmm. because of their strong gravitational pull. So in a way, it feels like Magical Negro is is constructed like a black hole that rearranges its universe on its own terms, which is what really a black hole does in mm-hmm. in, in reality. Mm-hmm. I just didn't know how that sounded to you. I love that. And I, I think that's entirely correct. This idea of slipping in and out of um, timelines and realities, I think, is, is a big part. And, you know talking about what's going on in Virginia. Like, that could be... In that moment, I was like, it's 1957. You know? Um, that's the way that I'm walking through the world. And and that there's a way in which our experience really is like that, where it's like... There's these constant reminders, and to the point where they feel um, as if we're all experiencing those things from the past and into the future. And, you know, that is how we um that's how we understand ourselves and our history um again because the facts of of those things are have been obscured from us basically or um we've been lied to about them so there is this space for us to just construct something else implode the narratives and um create a different myth or a different kind of understanding um, our place in the world. So, and I love the idea that the pull of that comes from the implosion. Mm-hmm. Like they're linked. Like the fact that the the black hole becomes infinitely dense is because of the implosion, and only from the implosion is the is the pull of the the whole the black hole happen. Right. Yeah. And you kind of have to go through in order to um, access a new space, I guess, and and a new kind of seeing. Basically. Well, thank you for letting me be weird. I am thrilled. (laughs) (laughs) So, so there's, there's a line in the book that goes, my body is an argument. I did not begin. And you also characterize the way you put the collection together as the process of making a case or building an argument. And that's a language you don't often hear poets use Mm -hmm. or talk about, about poems. 
and that you're arranging your poems to, in a way, underscore your thesis. Um, and one of the conceptual artists you refer to in Magical Negro, Adrian Piper, says in an interview with John Berger that while she finds analysis of racism praiseworthy, she wants her artwork to help people confront their own racist views, mm-hmm. which when I thought of that, I wondered if that was if that was the argument or that was the construction of Magical Negro also in some sense. Um, I just want to hear your thoughts on, on argumentation, essentially, or, or, or underscoring a thesis when it comes to creating art. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think of it as an indictment, you know, in that way of you have to come to terms. You're not going to leave this um, getting away with anything. You know, you have to come to terms with what are um, how are you either perpetuating or breaking down these long-held narratives that are violent um, and oppressive. And, you know, I, I went recently, there was an, an ex- retrospective for Adrian Piper at The Hammer in L.A., and it was an incredible exhibition. And so much of her work is about remaking history and about having confrontational images. Um, a, couple, a few of the different ex- like um, art pieces um, and projects were one where she dressed up like with an Afro wig and like kind of dark in her skin and was just like walking around. Um, Another where she had two different birth certificates for herself. Talk about facts are white and, uh, you know, building your own, finding your own origin, um, I think was very much in that. Um, she plays a lot with found imagery and placing something else on top of that. Um, and she also plays a lot with just documentation. Um, she has a series of, you know, photographs where it's just like every single day. Um, and I, I love that, that kind of Let's think about our experiences even almost scientifically and as this kind of experiment. Um, And one final piece I'll talk about is it was in a small room where there's just like a little bench and the video of Rodney King being beaten playing over and over. And it was really painful Um, especially there in L.A. And there was, like, an older white man who came in at the same time that I was watching it, and we were both feeling very emotional. And he was like, we can't forget this. And that really is... That's the, the you know, the essential point of that... um, that art piece. And I, I, I really identify with that as it is painful, but we cannot forget these things and the repetition of it is important. And, um, the confrontation of it is important because it's ugly. And I think often we want to, like you said, distance ourselves from the ugliness that, um, we perpetuate. And we want to say someone else did that or that it's not affecting you in the everyday. Um, So 
Yeah, I, I don't know. I think I think that is a way of making an argument or um, really argument in terms of having a goal in changing minds about, you know, entering the book thinking one thing and leaving it uh, with a new understanding in some kind of way. Hmm. Uh, uh, maybe this is a good time for another poem. Yeah. Um, Magical Negro number 89. All right. Michael Jackson in blackface on a date with Tatum O'Neill, 1970s. Um, okay. Have you seen that picture, by the way? I have not. It's so weird. <laughs> like, someone just, a friend of mine sent it to me, and I was like, uh-oh. Talk about a magical date. Like, he just, it's weird. I'll look it up. Yeah, please do. <laughs> magical Negro number 89. Michael Jackson in blackface on a date with Tatum O'Neill, 1970s. There. I said it. I've been thinking about buying a gun. There's a precedent for my kind, and it doesn't end. My sense of time and condition is always six months to eight years ahead, or two days to 150 years behind. To be safe... I remain in a state of repentance. I can't help it. Our song plays in the grocery store. I'm picking out parsnips. I imagine telling my dad I'm buying parsnips and laugh at the way he would say, Girl, don't you know you're a Negro? What in the hell? A confession is, in this moment, I do not know precisely how parsnips taste, only that I've had them before, some dinner party, some new American Brooklyn situation. And I was delighted, lifting my glass to toast a gruner for no reason in particular except I approximate myself as something to celebrate. I could go on like this for decades. Dress up is what we call blessed. I only get turned on in hiding, shoulder to door jam and maybe a rifle. We are scared shitless to leave the house as ourselves, and we like it that way. Isn't repentance always a question? The glass is empty now. I'm desperate as Motown snow, something hissing in my palms. I can never, ever stop thinking about Fred Hampton and youth and how it ends. Grown up is when the other you eats you, when what you allow is a monster. Sometimes in bed with white lovers, I ask permission to show my dark. The devils underground are still. I've been listening to Morgan Parker read from her latest collection of poetry, Magical Negro, from Tin House Books. So this poem ends with you in bed with a white lover, and you have another poem in the collection, Matt, that I think I'm has taken on a life of its own in the world <laughs> more than any other poem. Yeah. So which I, is awesome. <laughs> yeah. No. So I, I want to hear about the impulse behind the Matt poem, but also as much about how Matt has traveled since Matt has been released into the world, the mm -hmm. unexpected ways you've, you've Matt has sort of uh, touched people and become a phenomenon. Yeah. I mean, I, I think a lot about, again, this kind of bodily memory and ancestral memory. And there's no way 
that I can be in bed with a white lover and not think about the slave master and the slave. It happens even for a moment, and even if it has nothing to do with our particular relationship and that and those dynamics, that's just something that um, you know in the American cultural memory is there, and it's like always like inherently in um, in that relationship and and in um, just that visual. You know, there's no way that I'm not gonna just have a blip of whoa. What time period is it and what is going on here? Um, and a way that, you know, the ancestral memory is kind of reminding you. Um, and I think it's – I tried to explain it once to a white man that I slept with and uh, it was hard to explain that. And, you know, the guy was like – what? Like, do you not feel safe? Or And it wasn't that. It's just like, that is always going to be. And um, I'm just very interested in that, I think, and um, just wanted to give voice to that. And the Matt poem started when I was writing it as a way to get at that. And um, also as a way to say that specifically in terms of white men who usually aren't like thought of as threatening or um oppressive or anything like that that even those guys there is something underlying um in the relationship and that I that can't be you know um it just can't be unlinked um I wondered if it was even particularly those guys like you have this line Sure you have this line, I could never love him. He floats. Uh, and it made me think thematically to the, uh, to another poem in the collection, guess who's coming to dinner with Spencer Tracy at the ice cream parlor. And <laughs> he's sort of floating. He's floating on his abundance of choices rather than grappling totally. with reality. And it, it made me think of Mitchell Jackson, a line from Mitchell Jackson's in survival math that goes, and he's not talking about whiteness here, but I, sort of suggested in our conversation that maybe this was a description of whiteness. Ignorance requires ignorance of history, which is a way to preserve innocence in the face of living. And I, this is what it felt like to me, like this preservation of Certainly. innocence. Mm-hmm. And maybe the same the way we, 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 like we as white people will step back from Virginia. Exactly. Um, and, and, or the now more than ever, you know, right. and, or, um, time and progress, you know, those are all part of that ignorance. Um, Do you have any, can you share any anecdotes about funny or interesting ways Matt has traveled in the world? Um, and maybe your, your theories on why it's this, this particular piece in the collection that seems to have um, (laughs) caught on like wildfire. It's so fun to read this poem, um, in particular spaces, uh, I always read it when I'm in Portland and Seattle and um, where mats abound. <laughs> <laughs> I also like reading it like at colleges. Um, a lot of those young men feel very indicted and the young women instantly recognize, you know, um, something very real. 
And I, you know, it's so funny. I feel like I wrote this poem very quickly and like kind of in one, you know, I maybe had only a couple little edits and I wrote it like in the middle of the night, like at 2 a.m. I was like, I just, and I wrote the whole thing. And I, it felt very much like something I had been holding on to yeah. or figuring out and building, you know, for a long time um, and just like needed to be released. And I, I think the specificity within the poem is, is what makes it so fun and funny and searing. Um, again, there's repetition. Matt's writing a novel. Matt's also writing a novel, you know, um, seeing... I think essentializing a white man is like really hard for them to, to to take, you know, which which happens to us all the time. But they're like, but we're not all, you know, not all mats and all these things. Um, not all mats are mats. Yeah, and I, I, it's really funny the way that that like really hurts their feelings, yeah. um, and but also the way that guys are like, oh, I I know that part's about me, and I'm like, it isn't though. And surprisingly, that's a whole other person. Like, yes, oh, yeah, you are like that also. But I wasn't really thinking about you when I made this and the way that they see themselves in it. I, I think it's been really fun for women to share it uh, with each other and um, with exes, <laughs> with partners. And your therapist has shared and it. And my therapist <laughs> shared it with someone, which I was like, oh, my God. But she was like, he really needed to. <laughs> and, you know, I just think that it shows it shows this particular white man something that they usually aren't called out for. And that's uncomfortable. And it's uncomfortable for me to say it. And it's uncomfortable for them to hear it. Um, I think, I don't know. I get a, a lot of women coming up to me and being like, I just sent this to so many people and that is awesome. Uh, also I've met a lot of mats, like black women coming through the, the signing line and they're like, I'm here with my mat. And like one woman brought him over and she was like, look, it's Matt. <laughs> I was like, hello. And he was like, kind of like, hi. <laughs> That's amazing. I know. And, you know, there was one college I went to where a kid raised his hand and was like, I like Modest Mouse and I'm wearing a flannel right now. And I was like, <laughs> do you have a question? <laughs> like, what's happening here? <laughs> you know, this kind of like. Has a question for himself. Right, right. Yeah. And that part is fun. It's also fun to read and, and fun to. Um, bring in uh, these kind of very simple interactions, little things about Matt that build on this character. It mm -hmm. really is this, like, character sketch uh, of the type of guy, um, the type of text messages he might send. Um, Could we hear it? Yeah. For all intents and purposes, and because the rule applies more often than it doesn't, every white man or boy who has entered and fallen away from my particular moderate life has been called Matt. Not Dan, rarely Ben, never Matthew. Matt smokes unfiltered Pall Malls because Kurt Vonnegut did. We talk on MySpace because he goes to a different high school. Matt's in love with someone else, but I can tell he's still interested in me. Matt and his girlfriend aren't really together. Matt doesn't have a condom, so we can't. Matt also doesn't have a condom, so we can't. Matt loves Modest Mouse. Matt loves Kanye. 
He loves whiskey. He brings a flask to the park. He tells me I'm beautiful. He likes me. He follows me into the bathroom where I once found a bag of Coke. I tip sideways onto the tile, trying to steady myself on top of him while his legs are spread on the toilet lid. I say, what about you and Anna? He says, hold your ankles. I made Matt a really good mix CD. Matt's writing a novel. Matt's also writing a novel. Matt says, I'm a really good kisser. My friends say, I'm too good for Matt. Matt loves his mom. Matt's moving to Berlin. Matt's moving to California. Matt's quitting smoking again. Matt rolls his own cigarettes. Matt has depression. He listens to sad songs. Matt wants a big family. He seems like he would be a good dad. His family is so white. His favorite novelists are white. His ex-girlfriends are white. He said he would call me. His ex-girlfriends are really skinny. He has this thing where he seems like he doesn't care about anything. Matt's in love with someone else. He thought I was way older than him. He got a new tattoo. He has bad dreams. I miss him. He loves foreign movies. He's stoned all the time. He pulls me into another room. He has a beard, and he also has a beard. He kisses me in the other room. He loves my dog. He flirts with me all the time, I think, just for fun. Oh, Matt. He knows he's a white man, but doesn't think of himself as a white man. He doesn't know what to do with his life. He floats. He is young. He can afford to be cool. He wears a lot of flannel. We're just friends. He's nervous about commitment. He's nervous in the elevator when he touches the small of my back. He's nervous on the roof. I'm nervous taking his hand because people can see us. His roommate walks in on us, then gives us shots of gin. We all sip in silence. After that, we smoke on his fire escape and make out. We smoke in front of the bar and make out. We make out on an empty subway train. My back slips around on, my, on the hard plastic seat. He pays for my brunch. He texts me all the time, even at the airport. He's breaking up with his girlfriend. He and his friends are drunk in someone's apartment in Queens. What am I up to? He hates his job, but he's totally a genius. He lost his phone, so he has a new number. He hates his job, and what he really wants to do is make art and be happy. He needs to live abroad for a while. He used to be really dumb. He swats his hair from his forehead and says, of course he will call. I always ask, but I'm going to stop asking. I'm nervous he doesn't understand. He didn't grow up with many black people. He knows he is part of the problem. He just believes in love and knowledge. Matt, Matt. Matt, Matt, Matt. Each one more beautiful than the last. Each one with more intricate ennui. I could never love him. He floats. I can't stop loving him. Matt knows the bartender. Matt studied comparative literature. He still loves his ex. I just know it. He says, I like talking to you. He says, watch your head, as I ride him in his dorm room bunk bed. He's so sorry he didn't call. It's just that things have been busy and weird. Matt and I sneak out of a movie to hook, to hook up in his car. He is afraid of me. Matt and I are hanging out this week, I think, to watch movies or something, I guess, maybe. 
He's never met anyone like me. Things are just super casual with us. Neither of us is looking for a relationship. Matt loves relationships. He slept with my friend. I can't tell if he's into me because I'm black or because I'm not that black. And either way, I feel bad. I feel it in my stomach's basement. Matt can't want me. I am not forever. Matt has kissed me hundreds of times, and he kissed my ancestors, too. He held them down and kissed them real good. He was young, and he could afford it. When he touched them, they always smiled, almost as if it had been rehearsed. been listening to Morgan Parker read from Magical Negro. When, when you were first on the show, we talked about your experience growing up in predominantly white spaces, mm-hmm. and, and more recently in the New York Times profile of your amazing apartment that <laughs> the entire literary world is, is salivating over at this moment. Um, one of the ways you describe your style is Black Wes Anderson. Yes. <laughs> I love that, Black Wes Anderson. Um, and in the nonfiction piece you wrote about attending the Bill Cosby trial mm-hmm. called Are We Not Entertained, you, you talk about your own family being an aspirational family values black family, one that you called American Dream Black. And, of course, Bill Cosby's own sermons in the black community and the Cosby show itself mm-hmm. are steeped in this form of respectability politics. So I guess I wondered about this trajectory from moving from books that try to charm us to books that are, do not have that as a concern in relationship to, um, and this is the way you describe your, one of the ways you've described your current book. I wanted to explore in this book pushing the perverse and the gross and the ugly and the uncomfortable as a beauty as well and allowing pain to exist alongside beauty, running into the garbage fire that is America and ourselves and seeing what we can learn. I wondered if you feel like Magical Negro is a sort of undoing in a way of American Dream Black, uh, if it's a a way to, um, I don't know, decolonize a, an assimilationist impulse. For sure. Yeah. And and the way that that happens on a personal level is really painstaking, you know, and it's an uphill um, experience. It's really hard to shed what you have learned or not learned for your entire life um, and what you've understood to be, you know, the aspiration um, and what you've understood to be the right way to be in the world or be accepted and all of these things. Um, Yeah, I I really do see it as a kind of taking that apart. Well, I wanted to maybe look at this, this act of interruption. So Mm -hmm. you have, you were raised in a certain way and and in a way your art is, is, I don't know if interruption is the right word, but um, you did write an essay that I really loved called, I think about this a lot, Kanye West at the Katrina telethon. And, um, and you say this really interesting thing about interruption, but I, I wanted to first, maybe you could orient us again to that phenomenon with uh, Mike Myers and Kanye West for people who don't remember um, and why you were compelled to write about it in the yeah. first place. It really is a moment, you know, in Magical New York, kind of marking these particular moments in time that I think about as um, an example of something, I guess, um, or a synopsis of a particular um, theme or uh, 
narrative within the black experience. And, and I don't, I just really think about that moment a lot. Um, I mean, so does everyone. Like, I, I think it's like very culturally popular and I'm interested in the way that it's funny and so deeply sad and what, and it makes everyone uncomfortable. Like Mike Myers' face there is something that I, you know, that is like, that's evidence of a discomfort working on, um, on the working on the white expectation of a black performer, basically, and on decorum in general. I Absolutely, think, what is what you're supposed to do, and then whoa, what happens when we break out of those moments? And it, it's really, I think that's why it's really interesting to me because even more than many other stunts that Kanye has pulled in his you know career, it is this moment of refusing to follow a particular rule and it isn't in service of any personal goal. It's just like an utterance, you know, and it happens in this moment where, you know, I'm always thinking of those moments where it, it's outside of the person it's outside of their even, um, language or, um, personality you know it's almost this blip of someone else is even saying this mm -hmm. and um the reasoning and the timing is an interruption and i, I the, the thing i was thinking about in that piece is just interruption as protest and um how revolution against uh the state as it were is is this kind of interrupting it's um uncomfortable and i mean that is protest in and of itself it's like uh yeah it's in your way and it's um i, I think that is that's real freedom to be able to um exercise that in whatever moment yeah i want i wanted to take a, a line you said in there that i that i really was captivated by and bring it back into Magical Negro and ask you a question. Mm -hmm. uh, and the line from the Kanye West essay is, I often consider the conditions that create revolutions and the acts that might be deemed revolutionary, how an average person, not otherwise a political actor, might be an agent of change, how maybe resistance looks like interruption. Mm -hmm. So if we think of resistance as interruption and we go back to Magical Negro, both your Kanye West and Bill Cosby pieces meditate on comedy. Uh, in the Kanye West essay, there's a line, I know we laugh when we're uncomfortable and we cry when we laugh. Those urges sit in our chests two-headed. And in the Bill Cosby piece, you say, I've been compelled to explore why I think what I think is funny, why I often use humor to talk about my darkest aches and the country's most egregious defects. I've been reading about the history of black comedy, listening to Richard Pryor vinyls, revisiting Dick Gregory's shtick and the Flip Wilson show. But also in Magical Negro, one section's entitled Popular Negro Punchlines. Mm -hmm. And somehow I relate, rightly or wrongly, I write this, relate this impulse to use humor to talk about one's darkest aches to you saying that resistance looks like interruption. Mm -hmm. I don't know if those feel connected to you. If like the humor 
is the interruption yeah, in some way. Certainly. Um, definitely. And the way that humor plays off of pain and, you know, and even like in the mat poem where it's like everyone's laughing and then suddenly it's like, oh shit, slavery, <laughs> you know, I think, yeah. um, I'm really interested in those moments and playing off of those moments. And that certainly just is part of, uh, how I kind of speak and move through the world. And, um, but I think there is this long legacy of black comedy being interruptive and going outside the the boundaries of what we're supposed to um, say to each other and to white people. Um, and it's this weird – it's in a weird arena that's sort of abstracted from everyday life. Mm-hmm. Like you're you're saying – or the black comic is saying things they're not supposed to be saying, but in that context – there's a way in which they're allowed to say them mm-hmm. in a way, or I don't know if allowed's the right word, but that, that context of being in a stand-up routine, there's a way in which that is a transgressive place. Certainly a hundred percent. And I, you know, in what world would like a crowd of white people be listening to some shit like that. And, you know, I think about that a lot when I'm on stages and, um, it it is a space that is divorced from, and I don't know if I mentioned it in that essay, but it's certainly something I've been thinking about is this, um, yeah, I think I mentioned it, but the, the fact that that is a space where you kind of is, there are no rules and there's something so intoxicating about that. Um, that is a particular kind of power and, you know, can be used for good or evil. You know, this idea that there will be no uh, punishment for this. Whereas in the world, those moments can like have consequences. Um, And yeah, I think about literature in that way and comedy in that way of like, I can say this in these spaces, um, I'm like, I might not say this to your face. I mean, me personally, I probably will. But, um, you know, I might not articulate it in this way to you on, you know, just chatting at happy hour. But what I I can put it in this book and it's takes on something else where it's it's literature, but it's also like me saying something I needed to get off my chest. Is that what you mean when you say that? the way jokes operate is something that influences the way you write poetry. Definitely. Um, in, in that there is a kernel of truth in that there is play on language and narrative and just like the sentence and how, uh, yeah, the order of words and all of that is very important to joke telling. Um, and the way that jokes disregard, time and space often, um, not only just, you know, decorum, but really there is a way in which different histories and different perspectives can make their way into the same joke. And I'm really interested in that. Um, of course we think about black humor and laughter as being a way of coping, but I also think it is a way of as you said, resistance. It's a way of um, articulation. Um, I often feel that, like, 
so much of my experience is surreal and it's like it's almost funny you know and i i think a lot about prior and gregory and and a lot of their jokes work like that where it's almost funny or it's funny until it's not and i love that space and that's the space of um you know i guess kind of leaning over the line of charming and uh mean you know Mm -hmm. um and and that's a fun line to walk um and play with and it's very jarring and like unsettling to people and that's a cool um it's a cool feeling to try to get at well before we finish i i did want to touch at least briefly on your on process, especially because mm-hmm. so many people listening are are writers or aspiring writers. Um, the the ways that you engage with visual art in the book, because I think the ways you engage with visual art and your process seem to be connected. And it, you have this conversation with Vivian Lee, and as a random weird aside, I don't know her, but we're in the same fantasy basketball league. Oh my god! So we've battled. I know all about that league also. We've, we have battled each other. That's so fu- She's so good at it also. She's it's really good. weird. It's her first year, and that doesn't usually go well for someone who's their first year in our league, and she did great. <laughs> um, so in your conversation with Vivian Lee, um, you talk about your process of writing as a form of translation, um, that you'll see an image and ask yourself, what would that image look like as a poem? Mm-hmm. Or what would your apartment look like if it were a poem? And the book is populate, populated by images, the mm-hmm. f- photograph of Diana Ross eating ribs and also the visual artists, Ligon and Piper. And you've also talked about how you love aesthetics and you have lots of art books. Um, and you've said in describing your process there isn't really a sense-making in the poem itself. It's more just a painting of an emotion. And you've also talked about your process in spatial ways when talking about taking things that you intuit should go together, but you don't know how they go mm-hmm. together. And then so the process of the poem is connecting these things and finding how they do. Um, but all of this sounds translational ultimately, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but also maybe different than a lot of people th- think of writing poems. So talk, talk to us about image in relationship to process. And I don't know if you want to talk about that in in relation to a specific poem or just some thoughts that might come to mind in general. Yeah. I think, um, that translation idea is very much at the heart of a lot of my work. Um, whether it be translating a feeling that I have had or, um, yeah, putting, putting different, uh, ideas into different languages, I guess. And then there's, you know, translating the feeling of listening to an Isaac Hayes song or whatever, um, translating image into language, um, and seeing what happens in that space and that difficulty of translation. Um, and it really, in that way is, a very, you know, aesthetic-focused uh, way of writing, which, you know, is not that surprising in terms of poetry plays so much with the page and, and the visual. So the aesthetics of um, a poem is not, you know, we all poets think about that. 
But I'm also thinking about it in terms of, you know, I don't know. I really do think of it as how I, like, decorate my apartment. It's a very similar, you know, you walk in and you see these things. And, and I'm trying to, I almost think about writing a poetry book as this kind of interior design. And each poem is a different room. And, um, you know, it, is there incense? Is there sage? Is there a song playing? Um, what's hanging on the walls? What is the the aesthetic of the poem um, paired with the content, I guess, and the form. So there's uh, these different elements that I'm playing with and connecting. That's like often my way into a poem. Mm -hmm. Um, I want it to, I start with a tone and and aesthetic really, um, which often is informed by the different cultural figures that I use. you know, you're in a particular era. You're thinking about a different, a particular kind of um, performer or whatever. So that really is, and that has to do with this kind of. I want to put together the feeling of um, being afraid, and you know, this weird image of um, Diana or. Um, Michael Jackson and Dana O'Neill and the era of that. And and you might not know how to get from one of those things to exactly. the other when you start. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes it's just like, okay, what are the songs I'm thinking are, you know, like what's the playlist to this poem and what are the colors and uh, what are the patterns? Um and it is a sort of design in that way. Mm. And something about playing with that um, aesthetic tone and mood helps me to articulate um, something that I don't know about yet. Um, so I usually start with that, the kind of like mood and tone. It sets the stage for a particular question, really. Um, like I'm sitting with these different objects uh, in the room and making sense of how it all fits together aesthetically. Well, I'd love to end with the final poem in the book, but before we do, I just wanted to ask a brief question to set it up because when we arrive at the end of the book, we realize it loops back to the beginning, Mm -hmm. which I feel like is wonderful when we, when we are talking about linear time being white and here we are at the end, but we're really not at the end. We're Mm -hmm. at the beginning or everything's happening at once. Exactly. Um, But the beginning is an epigraph uh, of some racist lines by Gertrude Stein. (laughs) And the end is a poem that I think dismantles, Mm -hmm. engages with and dismantles those words in a way. Yeah. Uh, Is that the right reading of that? I just wanted to hear why you wanted to bookend the book with Gertrude Stein's words ultimately. Yeah, I... I'm so compelled to that um, that language and who's speaking it. Um, so much of the book, it, I keep saying it's funny. My last book had an epigraph of Kendrick Lamar. And now for this book called Magical Negro, it's Gertrude Stein, yeah. um, which is weird and unexpected. But I think because so much of this book is about um, that, historic repetition and the propaganda-ness of of our experience. Um, It's often about 
how we're being spoken about um, by white people. And um, I, I wanted the book to be an an answer and um, an anecdote to that, or sorry, antidote <laughs> um, to that. So I think it's important that you begin this book, which is very much black and out of blackness, but uh, to begin it with someone else's kind of um, description, I suppose, or or vision of uh blackness and it is it's also you know a joyful quote kind of Mm -hmm. um and what does that mean when spoken by her versus us um and also it's a it's a white canonical poet so when we think about um certainly being thrown against the sharp white background uh from zora neale hurston it's like magical negro with the background of the white canon yep too um, in terms of e- ending the book there, I that surprised me. I, I wasn't particularly planning to do something like that, but the poem came after the after I had decided to have that be the epigraph. And honestly, when I got to the end of that poem, I was like, "Well, there's nothing I can put <laughs> after this," you know. And yeah. I, I think that's that is it's a fantastic ending. Thank you. Yeah. And I, you know, it is one of those things where I was like, well, maybe this can go somewhere else. But no, it just can't. And I, I think there's something really exciting about getting through the book to that. Um, and it hurts in the right way. And it's like a joke in the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So. Well, let's hear it. Okay. It was summer now and the colored people came out into the sunshine They descend from the boat two by two. The gap in Angela Davis's teeth speaks to the gap in James Baldwin's teeth. The gap in James Baldwin's teeth speaks to the gap in Malcolm X's teeth. The gap in Malcolm X's teeth speaks to the gap in Malcolm X's teeth. The gap in Condoleezza Rice's teeth doesn't speak. Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard kisses the Band-Aid on Nellie's cheek. Frederick Douglass's side part kisses Nikki Giovanni's Thug Life tattoo. The choir is led by Whoopi Goldberg's eyebrows. The choir is led by Will Smith's flat top. The choir loses its way. The choir never returns home. The choir sings funeral instead of wedding, sings funeral instead of allegedly, sings funeral instead of help, sings black instead of grace, sings black as knucklebone, mercy, June bug, sea air. It is time for war. Thank you so much for coming back on Between the Covers, Thank Morgan. you. Always a true delight. We're talking today to poet Morgan Parker about her latest collection from Tin House Books, Magical Negro, and you've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. <laughs> Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. You can find more of Morgan Parker's work at morgan-parker.com.
morganparker.com. Morgan Parker has recorded for the bonus archive a reading from her forthcoming YA novel, Who Put the Song On? This joins supplemental material by Marlon James, Laylee Long Soldier, Carmen Maria Machado, Sheila Hetty, Boris Gander, John Keane, Jen Bourbon, Christine Scutt, Christina Rivera Garza, and others. All of this can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. <laughs>